0: month, the 27th Conference of the Parties, or COP, the UN Climate Negotiations Conference, will kick off in Cairo, Egypt. Once again, negotiators and politicians from all over the world will join up to talk through what they are willing to do to stave off human extinction. That sounds dramatic, right? But that's kind of what we're talking about here. There will be the usual massive contingent from the fossil fuel industry there as well. Last time in Glasgow, the fossil fuel industry sent more representatives than any one country did, and there's likely to be more of the same in Egypt. The organizers have, in a much publicized and criticized move, allowed major global polluter Coca-Cola to sponsor the event. Even worse, They've also hired Coca-Cola's publicist Hill and Knowlton to do PR for the conference. If you missed season three of Drilled, go back and listen to it. We did an entire episode on Hill and Knowlton founder John Hill and his work for both the oil industry and the tobacco industry all at the same time. Hill masterminded the strategy of hiring scientists to say tobacco smoking wasn't bad for you and that the jury was still out on whether it caused cancer. At the very same time, his firm was working for the American Petroleum Institute and some of its member companies. In fact, it was Hill who brought tobacco folks into the American Petroleum Institute. The longstanding relationship between oil and tobacco eventually resulted in the creation of the cigarette filter, a moneymaker for oil and gas companies looking for a new place to sell petrochemicals and a sleight of hand for the tobacco industry looking to convince consumers that they could make smoking less harmful by smoking lighter, filtered cigarettes. Hill represented Monsanto around the same time too, so no surprise that the chemical industry embraced a lot of the same tactics. Definitely the folks you want strategizing the messaging for your climate conference. I'm sure they won't be reporting directly back to their clients. Cue head-banging-against-wall video. At any rate, COP isn't just a time for official corporate greenwashing. It's also a period of time that tends to see major spikes in climate disinformation. Social media will almost assuredly be flooded with various memes about the elitists at COP, the failures of renewable energy, and that damn frozen windmill picture that makes the rounds every couple of years. A coalition of environmental groups has come together under the banner of climate action against disinformation to monitor the disinformation that spawns around some of these big inflection points. They initially got organized around COP26 in Glasgow, and now in advance of COP27 in Cairo, they've put together a report full of information aimed at helping journalists and other communicators avoid unintentionally spreading or amplifying mis- and disinformation. The lead author on that report, Connor Gibson, is joining me here today to walk us through it. That's coming up after this quick break.
1: A little bit more savviness is needed in newsrooms in the modern era in order to not allow that to happen. Because certainly disinformers now know how to exploit that tension in terms of something like viral sloganeering, which is a concept that the Data and Society Research Institute wrote a po- report on. You know, basically, ClimateGate is the example that I use mm. in this report. You know, how many major news outlets printed the word ClimateGate? That is right. The- Tagline of the climate change denial movement, and just putting that in your headline over and over again really <laughs> created uh, a sense among news readers that there was guilt and that there was fabrication of data and all of the false accusations that had been made after those climate scientists' emails were hacked and taken out of context and released. And right, you know, the fact checking that came after the investigations and exonerations that came after that didn't spread, that didn't spread nearly as widely as the phrase climate gate. It
0: never does. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It never does. So I think one of the biggest insurmountable feeling trends that I looked at in this report is just the economics of the newsroom. You know, when there is a revenue incentive that is based around clicks, shares, most emailed articles, that precludes the type of tone that is actually needed to stop misinformation from festering. And so the simple capitalist economics of keeping a news outlet functioning actually creates a breeding ground for misinformation as well. And is something that needs to be taken a lot more seriously than it currently is. But unfortunately, because it's about economics, I think that is one of the biggest obstacles that reporters will face when it comes to that tension between the responsibility of a reporter to communicate something accurately without feeding into conspiracy theory or myth and the responsibility of an editor to keep the newspaper in circulation and (laughs) financially healthy.
0: Oh, totally. Especially given all the social media stuff too. Like I see it all the time on Twitter. A lot of times, you know, the article itself
1: will be halfway decent, but the tweet is really misleading. Sure. Yeah, the the Mm. research started with a literature review, mostly a review of academic articles, many of which are peer reviewed, some of which are not, but are very prescriptive in terms of communications expertise. And that's where First Draft and Mm -hmm. the Data and Society Research Institute, the Union of Concerned Scientists, and some others have published really helpful information when it comes to just psychology-based communication techniques. Perhaps nobody more than academics like Stefan Lewandowski and John Cook and a lot of the collaborators on reports like the Debunking Handbook and the Conspiracy Theory Handbook. Just really excellent psychology-based communications advice that these academics have published in order to help people navigate the most basic traps. And this stuff has been around for decades, right? Like Richard Nixon, I'm not a crook. Everybody hears the word crook. George Linhoff wrote, don't think of an elephant because the only word that sticks in your brain after you say that is the word elephant. So, you know, a lot of this stuff has been known for a long time, but I poked around at some headlines, you know, from major outlets and I still see the same mistakes happening. And, you know, a lot of that is not um, it's not because people are foolish. It's just that there is a, an amount of faith in the audience when it comes to an honest journalist and editor writing a report and writing a headline that unfortunately just misses the traps that disinformation relies on in order to spread. And, and that's got to be really frustrating when you're a professional who writes something that's very intellectually honest. And yet, as a result of writing it in an intellectually honest way, it allows misinformation and disinformation to spread. So that's really why we wrote this report. It's why we focused on climate as a topic because of COP 27 coming up in Egypt. And every year when the United Nations climate negotiations happen, there's an inevitable amount of misinformation online and social media related to climate. And you can predict what some of it will be. It'll be rich people are flying on jets, how ironic. Uh, and, And things like that, there will probably be some outdated imagery circulated, like perhaps frozen wind turbines or, you know, solar panels not failing to meet electricity demand in some country, you know, something that's taken out of context that usually is recirculated every few years in a moment like this, in order just to seed a narrative of cynicism, in order to make people feel like, This isn't a problem that can be addressed, or this isn't a problem that needs to be addressed. Also, climate journalists are kind of a good target audience for us here because the phenomenon of climate change denial, I think, has made climate change reporters a little more sophisticated in understanding these trends before social media made disinformation such a rampant problem in the last few years.
0: I haven't thought about it that way before, but yeah, climate reporters, we sort of dealt with the disinformation thing before everybody else did in some ways.
1: And just the, the relentless nature in which that community of climate change deniers, you know, has stayed organized. Like they really, it's and it's the same guys, mostly men, you know, now for 20, 30 years that have been at it, you know, it took, A long time, but I would say that most of the people who are in the climate reporting world are far more sophisticated now than certainly they were in the 1990s or the 2000s when that phenomenon was a little underreported. The cast of characters wasn't as widely known. And there are definitely improvements in how that has been covered and kind of the level of scrutiny that is applied to those folks as messengers when they have a vested interest or they just have a long history of at this point, debunked contrarianism. So, you know, I we try to write this report and publish it with acknowledgement that we're not writing it because climate reporters are particularly gullible or anything like that. We think it's one of the more relevant fields with which to understand what communication techniques are required in order to mitigate misinformation and disinformation, as well as A field where some of that understanding is already a little bit more fully developed.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Can you talk a little bit about why this report is coming out now and particularly why it's being pegged to COP?
1: Sure. This report has been over a year in the making. I've been doing research on behalf of Greenpeace, which is my former employer of a decade until 2020. And Greenpeace you know, in several different offices around the world that it operates in, has an interest in misinformation and disinformation. And Greenpeace has partnered with a variety of groups uh, like Avaaz, as well as a coalition that this report will be published on behalf of, which is Climate Action Against Disinformation. Mm -hmm. And Climate Action Against Disinformation is a coalition that is formed actually from Work it did a year ago monitoring the previous conference of parties, COP26, in Glasgow, Scotland. And that was a less formal effort, but the same kind of idea of what is happening this year, which is a variety of groups, including the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, Stop Funding Heat, Friends of the Earth, Climate Nexus, Greenpeace, many organizations are just trying to proactively monitor. Social media disinformation related to climate change and related to COP27 in Egypt as it's happening. And so they will be publishing daily briefings that will be made available to reporters that are covering it, trying to observe disinformation and misinformation on social media as it's emerging in order to kind of sound the alarm and let people know which types of misleading narratives are being seeded. In order to undermine the united nations negotiations this year the institute for strategic dialogue and a bunch of other organizations published a report earlier this year in 2020 called deny deceive delay documenting and responding to climate disinformation at cop 26 and beyond and that report i thought was a particularly coherent breakdown of trends on social media who some of the most prominent misinformers and disinformers were and just yeah. like kind of tracing the, who was the original person to put, <laughs> you know, the 2014 photo of a de-icing exercise of a windmill <laughs> and recirculating <laughs> that into a myth as if it was something that were happening in 2021.
0: Yes. You know, yes. We actually so. had um, Jenny King on to like walk through that report when it came out too. I thought it was really interesting too. Right.
1: So that is that's the origin. It's that cluster of organizations that are working to monitor disinformation around COP27. This report is intended to complement that effort to give a little bit more prescription based on the best research that's available right now for journalists specifically, you know, to assess when to write or to not write about a trend, when is their platform giving more oxygen to a harmful narrative, as opposed to recognizing, oh, I do not have control over the oxygen hose. This is a serious widespread problem that needs to be covered, but how do I cover it? What techniques can we use in order to help interrupt misinformation without mm-hmm. actually helping it grow? And that's really tricky. The the, <laughs> the research is actually complicated on that. But there, there is now a more sophisticated understanding, certainly than there were three or four years ago about what some of the best practices are. And the meat and potatoes of this report or the tofu and potatoes is to summarize what some of those best practices are and also highlight what some of the unknowns and some of the nuances are that are still being researched.
0: Okay. Can you get into some of the specific examples? Obviously we can't get through all of them and there are a lot of really good ones in here, but what are some that really jump out to you. Sure. And I want to say, too,
1: none of this report is intended to shame specific outlets or reporters. It's intended to learn together. And for that reason, I actually included myself on my blog doing something that was a mistake (laughs) in in order to try to reinforce that notion that this isn't about trying to make any particular media outlet look bad, you know, unless they actually did something in bad faith, like Breitbart. Right. of course, of course. Yeah. So, you know, one example is the hurricane and climate conversation. Science continues to develop. We actually are getting to the point where scientists are more able to estimate how much worse hurricanes are as a result of ocean temperatures being warmer, as a result of sea level rise and what that means for storm surge. You know, that is not something that scientists could do 10 years ago. The modeling technology was not at that point. And so the goalposts are shifting as scientific understanding has caught up. And in general, it's still the case that it is difficult to assign like a percentage in terms of how much worse any given hurricane is as a result of climate change. But there are very specific factors which scientists clearly understand make hurricanes stronger, make them hit harder, make them cause more damage and suffering. And, And that is a nuance that can be navigated. We have an example of the Washington Post in this report doing a good job talking about climate change and hurricanes without losing track of a couple things. One is the nuance between how weather variability is unpredictable, and it's hard to assign any specific amount of you know how much worse any given storm is as a result of climate change. But the factors that definitely make hurricanes worse, as well as not losing track of the human suffering and how it is a also, not just a climate change story, but it is a impact on humanity story and not to lose that point, you know, while people are still digging up, you know, possessions from the wreckage.
0: Yeah. I love this This next one, the, the right headlines that omit the disinformation. <laughs> like, I think that right. that is something that I see happening all the time and partly because of this thing that we were talking about before that like if something is controversial or trending then there's a desire to sort of capitalize on that by sticking it in the headline right but yeah talk me through how damaging that is and also like what people should be thinking about doing instead
1: sure and this brings us back to the classic the richard nixon i'm not a crook Example, everybody heard him basically admitting he was a crook because that's how psychology works. You don't want to uplift the words that you do not want to stick in people's mind. That's just how our brains work. We know how to conceptualize the thing that's being illustrated through language. We're not going to be illustrating something that's not mentioned. So if you are a communications professional, including journalists, but also advocates, activists, you don't want to be using the language that paints a picture that's going to stick where the misinformation is the thing that is being illustrated. You know, again, this is not intended to shame anybody. The PolitiFact website kind of does not adhere to best practices when it comes to this. They quote the myth that they are debunking. So even when they have these really great images, including the Pants on Fire (laughs) logo, the reality is that they are still quoting the myth at the top of their article. And then oftentimes the next thing is they use the word no, and then they refute the myth. Again, that's two rounds of uplifting, misleading language before getting to the nuances of their fact check. It's also really important for me to say that this is a matter of best practices with results to the language. It is always worth doing a fact check. So I do not want to make it out like that Politifact shouldn't exist because they're not always using the best communication technique it's actually always best <laughs> to fact check that's the most important thing that can be done there was some research in recent years that was a little over concerned about various backfire effects and it is turning out that any attempt to fact check or debunk misleading information is worth it first and foremost so that's yeah. the most important thing is please debunk the information and yeah. spread that as far as possible that said there are still best communication practices that can be adhered to. And that's where some of these examples like uplifting misinformation about climate change on Facebook or repeating Tucker Carlson's words verbatim, that's not the best practice because that uplifts the misleading information that keeps it in circulation that continues to frame the conversation in terms of misleading language. It is better, as with the example from the Associated Press here, to, in the headline, address that there is a myth that is circulating before uplifting what the myth and the language surrounding it is. And a lot of these better fact checks in terms of the language and the order in which things are addressed are what is now being called the truth sandwich, in which you first warn the audience that they are about to hear misinformation, and you give them important details on what the topic is, who said it, before you uplift any of the misleading information. And you explicitly warn them that they're about to hear something that's misleading after they've already heard the context in which it is false. And then you can kind of address the explicit topic of misinformation before, again, reasserting the truth and why that information is false. And Mm. that's something I first saw, again, from academics like John Cook, who's at the George Mason University Center for Climate Communication, in publications like the Debunking Handbook, they've been very clear that just because of how our brains work, it's really important not to mention the myth first. It's important to mention the truth first and contextualize where the myth happened before you address it explicitly, and then to follow up again by reiterating the truth. That's a much more effective way to dislodge misinformation from a human's brain after they've already been exposed to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting.
1: Again, George Lakoff, author of Don't Think of an Elephant. I believe Mm -hmm. he might have coined the term truth sandwich. The technique of the truth sandwich is something that has been around for longer than that. And I'm not sure if John Cook and Stefan Lewandowski and all the co-authors of the Debunking Handbook were first to do it, but they're the first people that I saw addressing it um, in some of their publications. And I found those reports to be invaluable in terms of explaining communications best practices from a psychological perspective
0: yeah let's talk about the partisan signaling thing because I also thought this was really interesting and something that I think well a I'm pretty sure I have made this mistake myself and I think a lot of journalists do
1: great and I agree this one's really tricky just as a matter of personal preference like when I wrote publications for Greenpeace which is a explicit activist organization, unapologetically. That's what it exists to do. I tried very hard to never write conservative or right wing in any of my posts. I did not want to signal to an audience that like this is only something liberals should care about and conservatives should not care. Because that conversation is just a race to the bottom and it's hyper prevalent in our media environment here in the United States. But what makes it so tricky is the fact that when it comes to climate change, Republicans don't care. (laughs) And Democrats do care. And their constituents follow that exact pattern as well, and that is a factor in all of this. So how is a reporter supposed to navigate that when that is actually the factual reality of the situation, but it does readers a disservice to signal that you should care about something or not as a result of partisan loyalty? And I think that it's, it's something that can be navigated by framing the conversation around something else and including statements from politicians later in the article, perhaps to help illustrate the partisan divide or the massive disparity in how science is accepted or interpreted, depending yeah. on partisan affiliation. But making that the story or making that the headline only serves to increase those divides when you know polling indicates there is a little bit more nuance among the electorate in terms of how they care about climate change, support for renewable energy and other policy solutions to climate change are a little more popular than you would expect when you just read headlines about Republicans trying to tank climate policy and Democrats trying to pass it.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's a good point. And also like, I feel like with climate in particular, part of the disinformation effort has been a concerted effort to politicize it. So to the extent that we can move away from that. It seems like a good idea. Okay, this next one I also found really interesting. I mean, there are lots of reasons to avoid the passive voice, but I had not thought about how it might preclude accountability. Yeah.
1: This was one of the most revelatory things. So this is an idea that was published in a video by the Union of Concerned Scientists through a communications expert named Sabrina Joy Stevens. And it's about not writing in the passive voice. So, Stevens, I'm going to quote from what she says in the video. She instructs users, when we just name disparities and outcomes without naming who and what is responsible for those disparities, we make it seem like a person's identity is responsible for the problem instead of the people and institutions discriminating against them on that basis. Hmm. So, there is an implication, an unintentional consequence to glossing over an issue without kind of naming people who are most impacted by it and people who are most responsible for making decisions or incentivizing that problematic trend pollution is the example that Sabrina Joyce Stevens uses in the video and and again environmental organizations i think often fall into this trap just as much as reporters do where you're trying to do the responsible thing by mentioning hey it's communities of color that are most disproportionately subject to polluting infrastructure which is you know responsible for higher rates of chronic illness and preventable death right. but that narrative doesn't include the fact that it's not an accident those polluting refineries and facilities are built in communities hey. that are that are you know lower income majority people of color. Those are decisions that are made on purpose by executives, by politicians, by officials who have the power to permit them. And excluding that from the story does a disservice that is akin to victim blaming. And it's really important for journalists, I think, to feel empowered to be able to put that in print without it being seen as an activist move. It's actually just part of the reality and something worth including reporting that it's not an accident that these things impact different groups disproportionately. That is right. by design. And it's okay to put that in print because that's just the reality of the situation. We don't really need any more examples or data to understand that's how this happens.
0: It's an interesting one to think about.
1: And it just requires such self-awareness of your own writing. I think that's why it struck yeah. me. You know, I was yeah. like, how many times have I done this by kind of not stating something explicitly or just just following the norms of, you know, how I've seen reporting and, you know, writing done from both the media as well as from advocacy groups, maybe something that can be done is in the final editing stage, doing a scan intentionally for are there points in this article where the passive voice is being used that actually leaves a lot left unsaid that precludes accountability. And I, in my mind,
0: like part of that is sort of um, norms in the media too. That that very much, I don't know, started to shift away from accountability in like the 30s and 40s, and have never really gone back. You're sort of conditioned to not make accountability statements in a sort of straightforward way. You're just sort of describing the situation versus assigning agency or blame to anyone. That is very much sort of how a lot of newsrooms encourage people to write, even though in general the passive voice is something that editors like to edit out of pieces for grammar reasons.
1: Yes, I think that's also, again, this is just how a function of how newsrooms operate. The need for brevity competes with the need for nuance and how that can actually unintentionally lead to a more inaccurate reporting.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's even driven by a desire to not seem opinionated or biased, which, I mean, this is a conversation that's been going on for years now around the sort of myth of objectivity in media and how, in fact, it often emphasizes a particular bias in the interest of avoiding any sort of opinion or bias. This one was really interesting to me because I'm like, oh, I definitely see this a lot. And I also have seen and had editors actually encourage that type of construction because you're not supposed to ascribe intentionality to anyone.
1: Sure. That's got to be one of the trickiest things about best communication practices for journalists and editors when it comes to misinformation. And even that's a point where best practices in this report might seem to contradict each other. Like I'm saying, some research indicates. Precludes accountability to write in the passive voice, and I'm also saying please avoid partisan signaling. There's an irony there where Republicans are more obstructive to climate change, and yet this guide says don't just write about Republicans and, and what Republicans don't do and what Democrats do. Right? There's an, there's an irony there. You know, it's it, there's a lot no, of nuance right. here that's actually very, very hard to navigate if you're a journalist or a newsroom, and I think that's why this is so important too. It's there's not a lot of time to sit and think about this if you're a journalist. You're on a deadline for story after story after story. You don't want to get scooped. Uh, you want to do an informative piece without taking too much time away from the next responsibility. And that's you know the competing interests, the finances of a newsroom, and the time constraints on a journalist or an editor are also major factors here. So I'm hoping that a report like this can help start conversations between journalists and editors and anybody else in the journalist profession about, you know, what are the next steps in terms of best practices to navigate some of this stuff? Because some of it is seemingly contradictory. I don't think it is necessarily, but like more conversation is needed to figure out what journalistic norms are necessary now that social media misinformation has interrupted previous best practices that are now irrelevant and learned how to exploit them in order to generate coverage for something that shouldn't be covered or in order to let misinformation go viral before it is debunked in a way that is like less makes less impact than the viral misinformation in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think the the idea of inoculation is one that I know I've I've talked to John Cook about before too but I I think it's really interesting and important. How do you think about inoculation in general and how successful have some of these tactics been?
1: I'm not sure how to measure if inoculation is successful, which I think makes it frustrating in terms of knowing how to prioritize it. If you do a good job inoculating against disinformation, the disinformation just doesn't really take hold, right? So it's much easier for us to look back in time and say, here's a narrative that was not inoculated against and it really took off, like uh, the false blaming of wind power for the Texas freeze disaster in February 2021, very obvious example. Most of Texas's city generation infrastructure that winter was from thermal power, mostly gas and nuclear. That's the majority of what failed. And yet some politicians falsely blamed wind turbines for the collapse of the grid in 2021, a deadly disaster, and as well as the misleading images that circulated online, like frozen wind turbines in Sweden many years previous where helicopters were actually performing a maintenance exercise about de-icing them. You know, that had nothing to do with Texas. They're completely different regions of the world. Texas did not weatherize any of their electricity generation infrastructure, not just wind turbines, but also their gas and nuclear plants, which froze. So that's an example, I think, where Inoculation could have gone a long way, but it's it's complex to anticipate. You can't anticipate a disaster like that necessarily, or when it's going to happen, and that means there was no priority for journalists just to start writing articles to make sure people understand the composition of Texas's grid and <laughs> uh, you know things things that could have inoculated right. against it. That said, the context that we're in right now, we're we're coming up toward the 27th United Nations climate change negotiations, there are certain predictable pieces of misinformation that will circulate, including against elitism, the irony of using jet fuel to go to a climate conference. Those are arguments that, out of context, are very easy for people to scoff at and become cynical about. And I think when there's a major event that is predictable that's coming up, that is a good time for journalists to have a think about writing some inoculation pieces like predictable misinformation that will likely circulate in the next few weeks and why that is not true, the cherry picking that's required in order to make that sound reasonable in the minds of people who don't spend all day paying attention to these trends. So inoculation is Is a tricky one because there's not necessarily a direct revenue incentive to write articles that get out ahead of misinformation that is only theoretical. You know, this information might circulate. That's a much harder thing, I think, Mm -hmm. to get past an editor's desk than a disinformation trend that just happened and had widespread impact.
0: Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome. All right. Well, we will definitely share a link to the whole report in the show notes so people can check that out. I appreciate you walking me through it. It's a handy resource. I feel like, you know, I'm not coming at this cold, but there was definitely things in here that I hadn't thought about that are super helpful. Thanks so much, Amy. it for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Drilled is an original Critical Frequency production. The show was created and reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Original music and mixing and mastering for this episode by Peter Duff. Our artwork is by Matthew Fleming. For ad-free episodes and bonus content, you can sign up for our Patreon patreon.com slash drilled.